And then, and this is the last one I do before we get to the story, I promise. We have Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount. I was reading a book a couple weeks ago where the author talked about the Sermon on the Mount and said it wasn't really a sermon because no one was bored into a comatose state while listening to it. <laughs> but it's not really a sermon, uh, at least not how we understand a sermon, for other reasons too. We probably call it a sermon because it's a long piece of continued speaking by one person. But it's not really a sermon. It's Jesus issuing his teaching for how his community of followers ought to behave. We saw last week it involves don't be angry with a brother or sister. Don't hold a grudge. Don't lust, etc. And if I am a first century Jew with an intimate knowledge of the Old Testament, and there is a story about someone giving instructions for how a community ought to behave as a special people, and these instructions were given on a mount or a mountain, what would immediately come to mind for me is the giving of the law on the mountain of Sinai. Matthew is representing the story of Israel around the life and story of Jesus. Now, why did I tell you all this other than to completely geek out for a few minutes? When we see this larger picture of what Matthew is doing, we see that Matthew is treating the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus issuing his Torah, his law. And we should treat the content of the Sermon on the Mount the way Israel treated Torah, the way Israel treated the law. These are things that Jesus actually wants us to do. These are things that Jesus actually intends for us to do. This is a way of life Jesus actually expects us to follow. So with that in mind, let us turn to our particular section of the Sermon on the Mount for this week. We are still in Matthew 5. It'll be displayed on this beautiful screen here. Uh, it's printed in your lifelines, and if it's also in the Bible. And if you would like a Bible, we have some available on our welcome table by the exit. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'll let that last sentence hang on the air while I go get a drink of water. Now, there are a number of ways to interpret this piece of scripture. I want to provide you with one way that I don't particularly agree with, then talk about why I don't agree with it, and then move to how I think we should view this text, which sounds long, but it will be okay, I promise. 
There's one particular way of interpreting this piece of scripture that wants to place it within its historical context and in a unique and somewhat fascinating way. I wish I knew who first talked about it in this way, but I don't remember, and Google was no help. So sorry, random historical guy, I'm totally plagiarizing. This interpretation looks at these commands within the specific context that they were issued, and that is to oppressed people living under Roman rule. Jesus says that if someone strikes you, you should turn the other cheek. Roman soldiers would frequently strike Jewish peasants and would strike them with the back of their right hand. It was a sign of superiority and it was meant to demean the one being hit. Backhanding is still seen as a sign of superiority and reveals a power disparity between the one hitting and the one being hit. The other piece of historical information we need is that the left hand was the unclean hand. It was the hand you did unclean jobs with, and it was never used for anything other than unclean tasks. When Jesus tells his followers that if they are hit to turn the other cheek, he is telling them to dare the Roman soldiers to hit that cheek as well. But if you turn that cheek to them, the only way that you could be hit is to be slapped with the front of the other person's right hand, which is the way that you would hitch your equal in ancient times. So when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, Jesus is giving his followers salient advice on how to gain power for themselves. And it goes on from there. When Jesus says that if someone asks you for your shirt, give them your coat as well, the result of doing what Jesus says is that you will be naked which is a dishonor. But the dishonor would not be on you. It would be on the one who forced you to be naked by suing for your shirt. So you have taken the power back from someone who had power over you. Lastly, in ancient times, Roman soldiers could conscript anyone they wanted into service of carrying military packs or equipment but the most they could do was ask a person to walk one mile. They can't make you go a second mile. They didn't have power over what you did for that second mile. If Jesus' followers walk the second mile, it's on their own choice. It's on their own power. Once again, we see that the oppressed person gets the power back from the oppressor by walking the second mile. Now, don't get me wrong. These are cool interpretations. And it answers the question of what law, what those instructions would mean for the followers of Jesus in Jesus' time. It just doesn't answer the question about what we should do with these teachings in our time. And if Jesus' teachings on the Mount are to be our equivalent of how the Jews viewed Torah, then this teaching is for then and for now. Moses delivered the law to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, and there are parts of the law that make a whole lot of sense for a new people living in a new land trying to build community. But then 500 years later, these same people are living by the same law, so clearly it was not meant to be bound by its particular context. I think the same is true for Jesus' teachings for us. They might have meant something particular to the particular context to whom he was speaking, but they are also binding for us, and I think we have to take his words as such.
So when we approach this text, we have to take Jesus' words at face value and as binding. We have to read these words with the assumption that Jesus really expects us to do these things just as the people of Israel lived under and followed the law for centuries. Jesus says, do not resist an evildoer. If someone wants to hit you, let them hit you and invite them to hit you again. Jesus says this to us and expects that we will follow. At this point, we can reply, I literally can't even. I can't let someone hit me. And I certainly can't let them hit me twice. What's that saying? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I mean, what would it mean for me to let anyone hit me as much as they want, whenever they want? Wouldn't that open me up for all sorts of abuse? Wouldn't that open me up to being beaten, to being humiliated, to being insulted with no ability to defend myself? There's no way I could do that. I mean, it, I mean, it could even lead to my being killed without doing anything wrong and without any way to defend myself, even against unjust charges. What would happen to me if I really did this? Jesus, don't you understand? Don't you get what you're asking me to do? Hopefully I've telegraphed my point enough so that you can see where I'm going with this. Yes, Jesus knows exactly what he's asking us to do. Jesus was beaten, humiliated, and insulted. Jesus was killed unjustly. And Jesus never defended himself, never fought back, never called upon others to fight his battle. And let's be clear, if there was ever anyone who could have won any battle, it's the Son of God. But he didn't. He didn't resist an evildoer. And our crucified and risen Lord commands us to do the same. So I've realized I pulled out my biggest gun really early. I've hit the high point, I've hit the gut punch with a lot of sermons still left to go. Well, a little sermon, don't get too worried. But as we approach the rest of this passage, we have to have clearly in mind that while Jesus' commands are hard, while it's hard to do the things that Jesus tells us to do, the person giving us the command has done it. Jesus died rather than resist an evildoer. And if Jesus is our Lord, we have to do what he says and do what he did. I also got the big gun out early because the other commands of Jesus might well be harder for us than the first one. So fair warning. Approach the rest of this sermon with fear and trembling. Oftentimes I do, however, think it might be easier to die for your faith than to live out your faith. And we'll be, what we'll be talking about from here on out are things Jesus calls us to do to live out our faith that can be harder than getting hit, harder than being hurt, even harder than dying. Because instead of coming after our cheeks or our bodies, Jesus is about to come after our bank accounts and about to come after our hearts. Jesus says that if someone sues us, if someone presses us, if someone asks us for our shirt, we should give our coat as well which means we should give to anyone who asks over and above what they ask for. And yet, how many times have I passed by someone asking for something and not responded? 
How many times have I been stopped at a red light with someone on the corner asking for help and prayed that they don't make eye contact with me? How many times have I ignored people in need, ignored the letters and emails nonprofits send me, ignored problems that I could have a hand in solving? And it's not because I can't. It's not because I'm totally strapped for cash. I'm saving for retirement. I have a Roth. I have investment savings. I'm taking care of me. It's not that I can't. I just don't. Because I've chosen to take care of me and my family rather than giving to those who have real need. Now let's turn to Jesus' final instructions. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now I could make a joke here that in the church we are called to be a community with those we find hard to love like Cowboys fans. But that minimizes what Jesus is saying here and is symptomatic of the let you off the hook preaching that's done on this text often. Love your enemy is often applied in the church context as love the person that cuts you off in the parking lot. But come on. That's not your enemy. That's someone who briefly annoyed you. Preachers do that because we don't want to talk about what it really means to have an enemy and what it really means to love an enemy. Almost 15 years ago, a man and his son traveled around the Beltway shooting random people from a distance. They didn't know the people they were targeting. They didn't care. It was indiscriminate violence. For a few months, when you went to fill your gas tank, you didn't know what might happen to you. You didn't walk into the grocery store, you ran into the grocery store. You didn't leave your house if you didn't have to. To say we were scared is a complete and total understatement. Going about our lives, completing daily tasks made us fear for our lives. That man persecuted us. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's what Jesus meant. That's who Jesus was talking about. As we cower before these words of Jesus, as we shift in our seats uncomfortably, as we say, I literally can't even, we might finally understand what Jesus means when he closes this text by saying, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. God came to be with us in Jesus Christ. And in doing so, God did not resist an evildoer, but allowed us to kill him. God gave us more than we could ever ask for when he gave us nothing short of his whole self. And God loved the people who had declared themselves his enemies. God loved us. God loved the world. God has done all of this. And we are called simply to respond in kind. We are called to exhibit the same qualities, the same characteristics that God exhibited in Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes I literally can't even. But thanks be to God that he can and he did. And let us pray to God to help us more and more exhibit these same qualities, characteristics, and actions that God himself displayed in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Almighty and all-loving God,
these things that you call us to do. These teachings, these laws. God, they're so hard. They seem impossible. And so while we read them with fear and trembling, while we wonder how could we ever possibly live, live up to this, we are so thankful. We are so wonderfully thankful that you have done all of this. That you did all of this in order to accomplish our salvation. In order to be in relationship with us. In order to show us that you love us. So God, we pray. We pray today for your grace. For grace and love that will transform us, compel us forward, and will make us a little bit more willing to risk to be like you. God, a prayer, help us be more like you is a dangerous prayer. Today that is our prayer. Help us to love like you do. Help us to show our love to a world that n desperately needs to see what love looks like. Give us faith. Give us courage. And more than anything else, give us your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we celebrate Communion Weekly, we are reminded weekly of what God did for us in order to show us his love. We are reminded of the offering that God made in order to be in relationship with us. And so we bring our offerings as well to unite them with the offering God makes for us in Jesus Christ and with the Holy Spirit's blessing with the Holy Spirit's power, we pray that our offerings could somehow, could some way participate in the healing of the earth that God is trying to accomplish. Let us pray. God, you've made all there is, all that we can see and those things that we can't see. And you made us, formed us in your image, and breathed into us the breath of life. We've turned away. Our love has failed. But your love has remained steadfast as it's nurtured us and raised us. In the fullness of time, you sent us Jesus to teach us how to live and to show us what love is. And on the cross, it revealed to us the depths of your love. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, again gave you thanks, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this all of you. 
This is my blood of a new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here, and on these gifts of bread and juice, make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen. And now with the confidence of children of God, let us pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Communion here at Spirit and Life is open to all, regardless of age or church membership. This is Jesus' table, and Jesus invites all to come and dine with him. We have um, elements that are free of the eight most common food allergies, including gluten, wheat, egg, dairy. Uh, if you require those, please just let your server know. Would those who are serving please come forward?
hearts to our content. 